0: long short weirdos, weirdos
1: vandals, The government, love 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 the government love Welcome the government to The Politics the Guys, a place government. for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Glenn Hubbard, the Russell L. Carson Professor of Finance and Economics at the Columbia Business School. Professor Hubbard is the author of a number of highly regarded economics texts, and he's also served as the chairman of the U.S. Council of Economic Advisors from 2001 through 2003. I had the pleasure of speaking with him on our podcast back in 2017, and I'm really happy to have him back again today on the show so we can discuss his latest book, The Wall and the Bridge, Fear and Opportunity in Disruption's Wake. Glenn Hubbard, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, I thought that before we looked at walls and bridges, I, it would be good to get some context on sort of how we've gotten to where we're at in the U.S. economy. Uh, just for some background, in the 50s and 60s, obviously, it seemed like there were all sorts of well-paying jobs, and they didn't require a college education. I mean, a single wage earner could plausibly provide a middle-class standard of living for a whole household. and It was a period where economic growth seemed strong and widely shared, and parents had a fairly reasonable expectation that their kids would be better off than they were. And there are lots of folks on both the left and the right that see this as an almost sort of economic golden age. Uh, Though obviously, it wasn't as golden if you were a woman minority and so forth. But... But that economic golden age really started to come to an end in the 1970s. I know it's a big question, but can you give us kind of a capsule sense of what happened?
0: Well, it's a great question. I think it's the perfect backdrop for what we'll talk about today. You know, The period from the end of the Second World War to about 1973 uh, was a quite halcyon period in the American economy. Uh, Productivity growth was very, very strong during that period. That's the big story. The U.S. was also the only nation standing really after the war, giving American business and American workers advantages they might not have had in, in other periods. What started to happen after the early 1970s is a slowdown in productivity growth. We've had some bursts since then, but think of it as a slowdown relative to that. A golden age, and economists have a number of stories about that, but also big disruptions. Uh, and the two I talk about in my book are probably the biggest. Technological change and globalization really changed a lot the distribution of opportunities, while improving them on average changed a lot the distribution and gave an
1: unsettling feeling to many people. And I, when you talk about those disruptions, a, a, a big one, right, was... The uh, I guess you call it the China disruption, correct? The China shock. Yeah. yeah. And and that was that that actually happened. Not well, I, this. I'm betraying my age. It feels like fairly recently. But when you take a look, for instance, at uh, economic growth charts, it seems like China is kind of motoring along there at the bottom. And all of a sudden, it's like a hockey stick starting in the 1990s and especially after around 2000 or so. Is that, is that right?
0: Uh, That's right. Particularly after China's accession to the World Trade Organization in the beginning of the 21st century, uh, China really took off in terms of its growth prospects.
1: And and so this puts us in a situation in the United States where, well, in the world situation, this was clearly a good thing and lifted uh, countless numbers of people out of poverty. But it really created some challenges for the United States, and there are three things in particular in the book that you suggest that make our current situation uh, particularly difficult. Uh, those are the long-lasting character of the change we've seen, its geographic concentration, and the speed of the change. And, and I thought maybe we could you kind of walk us through those three challenges and, and what they uh, what they amount to.
0: Sure. You know, the book is, uh, in some sense, um, a tribute to Adam Smith, who taught us the value of being open to change, as have many economists since Smith wrote The, the Wealth of Nations. The change you mentioned in the China shock is uh, an example. It's It's near the end of the period of big shifts in technology and globalization that are happening actually since the, since the 1970s, they're different than Smith's day and different from what Americans have been used to in these three respects. One, they're very long-lasting. We're not talking about somebody losing his or her job and then it pops up and the business cycle changes. So it's a downturn, lose my job, six months later, I'm back, or if I'm the owner of a firm, the same thing. That's not what was happening. Some new jobs are being created. Some old ones are just going to go away. But a second big feature that was different from past shifts in America is how geographically concentrated this was. A lot of this happened in the so-called heartland or industrial heartland uh, of the country. And so on average, people could say the country is doing very well, but there may be entire communities and areas uh, let alone individuals' lives and jobs that are that are upended. And third, this was very fast. Uh, you you mentioned how it can look so long ago, but not too many years. Big changes in technology and globalization have completely upended um, the American labor market without a lot of response uh, from our policymakers. So it's it's not uh, uh, hard to imagine why so many people became uneasy.
1: And you mentioned specifically Youngstown, Ohio is sort of a, a, an example of all of these things coming together. And that's sort of uh, close to my heart in a way, because I was born and raised in, in northeastern Ohio. And, and you actually have some very real on the ground experience with Youngstown, correct? I guess Youngstown is
0: a great example because it, of course, was once part of the nation's great success uh, in, the, in the steel industry. It's also the epicenter of the problem that I'm talking about. The steel industry was buffeted, of course, by both technological change principally, the development of mini mills and so on, but also a globalization. Uh, Youngstown went from being very prosperous to being hollowed out uh, in a reasonable period of time. And I did take several cohorts of Columbia business school students with me uh, to Youngstown to actually talk to business leaders social service uh, organizations, politicians, to get a sense of what was going on uh, and what workers and firms were were feeling. So, yes, it's a great example.
1: And this, I think, is where we can kind of bring in walls. I want to get to bridges uh, after that. But uh, you talk about walls and walls are basically things, well, protection. And you mentioned three main types. As a response to this, there are walls that protect workers. Walls that limit imports and walls that strengthen society. I thought we could start with walls that protect workers. If you could talk a little bit about what these tend to look like and why you argue that they're just really not a good idea. Well, sure. Again, going back to Adam
0: Smith, we know that openness to change, to new ways of doing things, new kinds of business, new jobs and opportunities is very important. In a nation's um, prosperity. And so, why not protect jobs? The Youngstown was the center of speeches from almost every presidential candidate going back decades who would come in and say, I'm going to return the past to Youngstown. That was never going to happen, nor should it. The question is whether you can help people prepare for the future. There's two big problems in protecting jobs. Uh, The first is it's almost surely not going to work. It can't really hold back the tides that are as large as technological change or or globalization. Uh, And the second is that you're trying to lock people into a world that's in the past rather than helping them succeed in the future. There are great examples in the United States, places like Pittsburgh come to mind, that have successfully renovated and rebuilt themselves for a more modern economy. They didn't start out with protecting jobs. The other big issue, of course, with protecting jobs is who gets to decide what job gets protected? What's a good job? What's not a good job? It's easy to say, well, protect my job. Well, but what about the next guy's job and the other guy? What should we be doing to help everybody be able to compete? That's a more compelling question, but that's not a wall question. Yeah.
1: Now, next, we have these walls limit imports. And largely, we're talking about things like tariffs. And and, and you have some very uh, real experience in in the actual world of politics arguing against tariffs when you tried to convince uh, President George W. Bush to not impose steel tariffs. And and so this is something you feel, I think, pretty strongly about, and rightly so. Can you kind of explain what that argument, that anti-tariff argument is? Sure. And I'll also explain why
0: I think President Bush chose, maybe even wisely so, not to take my advice. Um, Tariffs are a bad economic idea, full stop. Your freshman college professor told you that. He or she was right. A tariff uh, limits our possibilities to consume. Uh, It limits uh, our productivity. It is simply a bad idea. It transfers money away from consumers. It's everything Adam Smith would have railed against uh, in his attacks on, on mercantilism. Having said that, I think we have to be careful about a system that forgets the rest of what your econ 101 professor probably also told you, which is when you have uh, competition, whether it's at home or abroad, there are always winners and losers, and it's okay to accept that as long as the total gains exceed the total losses, then typically the professor probably mumbled something like, uh, and it's important that the gainers compensate the losers. I think what worried President Bush, going back to the arguments I I raised before, is how geographically concentrated this was. And while there may be losses on average for a tariff, he saw it as the only way or only tool he had to keep the upper hand in trade promotion authority going forward. That's a political judgment. I can't really question it. But tariffs are clearly the wrong way to go uh, as an economic matter. To the extent that politicians reach for them, I think it's as much as anything else that economists haven't been imaginative enough to suggest alternatives. Mm-hmm.
1: What about, in fact, like, there are some cases where I can imagine at least you could make possibly a case for tariffs. And one is I think about unfair labor practices. I mean, if a country is able to produce cheaper goods, but they're doing it through things like abusing human rights, I mean, couldn't we make a case that, well, this is uh, sort of an exception to that rule because it's not, you hear sometimes talk about fair trade versus free trade. And and what, what do you think about that? Is there a case to be made for, you know, in the book you mentioned, uh, the Foxconn plant, and that, of course, was notorious for all sorts of issues with, uh, with worker rights and working conditions. And it, it, can you make a case that, well, this is an instance where tariffs might be a, a response to, say, human rights or worker protection issues? I think you can, and I think you
0: have to be careful. So let me take it in parts. First, I think consumers do an awfully good job in product selection. But you can make an argument, whether it's uh, Chinese human rights violations some of the other human rights violations, your question brings up, there could be an argument for tariffs. Uh, I would add to that arguments that have surfaced in Europe and are being discussed in the United States. You want to have border adjustments, which are kind of taxes or tariffs for differences in carbon intensity. I think all of those are legitimate uh, discussions. The problem is you have to be careful. It's easy to say child slavery is a human rights violation, but the fact that, let's just say, a worker makes less in another country doesn't sound to me like a human rights violation. They really need to think about, think hard about how you're going to impose that kind of discipline. But yes, it is absolutely a legitimate discussion.
1: Another instance that maybe the, uh, at least feasible or, or defensible, I guess, to impose tariffs, in my mind, is national security purposes or some kind of walls. Because, for instance, back uh, when, when COVID started, there were all sorts of discussions and concerns about their most PPE being made outside of the United States. And there's, of course, you know, other defense issues and so forth. But can you make a case that, well, it's important to have certain supply chains in the country, even if that's not necessarily the most economically efficient thing?
0: Well, I think that's uh, absolutely the case. Uh, What's striking to me about the COVID pandemic is how much businesses learned about their own private interests, not just the social interests you you raised, that privately they believe now that maybe they were too hyper-efficient, not resilient enough. Their own private actions will correct that. I don't think tariffs are the right answer, but the nation as a whole may decide that some goods need to be produced in the United States in certain quantities and then take steps to make sure that happens. Adam Smith himself signed off on on something like that. I just think we have to be very careful about reaching for the tariff
1: model uh, as a way to do that. Mm -hmm. And the other, the third kind of wall that you talk about are walls that attempt to strengthen society. And, and that sounds like a, <laughs> like a pretty good thing. Uh, I, I think those walls are maybe a little less intuitively familiar or obvious to people. So could you explain what those walls might look like and why you believe that they're, uh, generally speaking, problematic?
0: Sure. And uh, it's not the idea of being opposed to strengthening society. Right. In fact, the book is a Somewhat appealing to doing that with a philosopher named Carl Polanyi to talk about if you, uh, if, if you like. The concern was the movement that says, let's direct American corporations to use their assets for a stronger public purpose. Uh, and this I find very, very worrisome. I think Milton Friedman got it more or less right, not entirely, but more or less right a little over 50 years ago. When he said that business should focus on shareholder value maximization, I would say not quite 100% right, because I would add to that that it should be long-term shareholder value maximization. And if I'm focused on that, I'm necessarily going to treat my employees the right way, my customers, my suppliers, uh, hopefully because I'm a good person, but certainly because of the interest of long-term value uh, maximization. The question of having business step in and use its own assets to solve social problems raises the issue of who monitors the monitor, who gets to make these decisions. Uh, Friedman and also um, Friedrich Hayek had thought of these as real liberty issues for investors and for individuals. I'd be very um, suspicious, as it were, of arguments to use corporate assets in this way to solve public policy problems. I understand why some people go that way, because they believe government isn't up to the task, but then it's government we should fix, not turn to the corporation.
1: And there are, right, models in which we see this uh, being done. I, I think, isn't it in Germany where oftentimes there are stakeholders that aren't actually part of the corporate entity that are on boards and for representing workers and so forth. And, and that's the sort of thing where it's, it's mandated. From, from what, what I'm getting, you're saying that, well, while it might be okay for corporations to do these things on their own, the idea of giving them a well a, a legal responsibility to do that is is uh, the problem.
0: Well, a company that's not focused on its workers' capabilities and how well they're doing isn't going to be as successful That's not a public policy problem Uh, I think we need to solve. The problem I think people have is not so much the worker determination issues, although I don't think the German model is that efficient. I think it's more the notion that we can use companies to solve social problems because government isn't. That's just not going to work.
1: You know, you mentioned uh, Karl Polanyi. That I, that was a fascinating part of the book, actually. And I, I since, since you since you brought him up, it seemed to me that that he was arguing that these economic transactions take place in this this sort of larger cultural environment where things like like trust and and social bonds are very important. And, and it seems to me that as business gets bigger and more depersonalized in a way that these bonds become more difficult to maintain. Is that is am I, am I getting Pauliani uh, completely wrong? I don't know, but maybe you can kind of expand on no, that. No, you're,
0: you're, you're getting him exactly right. And I always tell my political economy students, he may be the person in the class that's the most important for today's debates. And many of them probably haven't even heard of him or, or read him. You know, in today's world, we tend to talk about the boundaries between markets and the state, the sort of classic right-left divide. Polanyi wrote about kind of in the middle, the idea of communities. And interestingly, while he wrote the great transformation, around the time Keynes was opining on what post-World War II finance would look like, Uh, Polanyi's arguments are really Keynes for the economy writ large. Keynes worried that um, a financial system shouldn't put rules ahead of people. That was his criticism of the gold standard and his view of how the Bretton Woods system, post-World War financial system, should be set up. Polanyi had much the similar view that basically, obviously, there have to be rules, but they have to be designed in a way that people's interests come to bear. So when we have these big changes to bring the time forward, like technological change and globalization, We don't need to do like both Bill Clinton did in the United States and Tony Blair did in the United Kingdom, to say these are inevitable and people just need to get along with it. We do need to listen to people and figure out how to help them adapt. That's what Polanyi says to our world. It's also connected, I think, to work that contemporary political scientists have done on social capital and civic capital as being very important this is tissue that's not the market it's not the state but it's very very important in bringing society together
1: and so i, I mean it's yeah, i think you make a very strong case against walls. i mean I, I certainly was convinced even even small walls because of your argument that uh, they get bigger over time and they favor special interests and but then i thought well You know, and you note this in the book, China seems to have committed even more strongly to state-owned enterprises. And those are some pretty big walls. And when you take a look, for instance, at China's economic growth, GDP growth rate versus the U.S., I mean, there's a a big gap there. And I can see somebody looking at that and saying, well, I don't know, maybe it sure seems like walls are working really well for China. Or maybe, and this has been an argument uh, oftentimes you hear in some quarters that, Walls make a lot of sense for developing economies. And so I, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, the kind of
0: mercantilism that Smith railed against is very much what China is practicing. And it is very much harmful, just as it was. And China was an economy that was catching up to a frontier from uh, a very underdeveloped state uh, after the death of Mao Zedong and the entrance of a new leadership era for China. So it's, it's easier for an economy to grow toward a frontier than to push the frontier. China's state-directed credit has in some sense sped that transition, but it's done so at the expense of massive uh, capital misallocation in an economy that's going to surely pay for that. So the pivot China needs, not for us, but for itself. Uh, is to focus much more on domestic demand and more market-oriented finance. So I I would not suggest that the U.S. trade places with that model at all. And China's adaptation has been more about the particular circumstance it had of just growing toward the frontier from abject poverty toward uh, prosperity as it improved its markets. But it is not a roadmap uh, for the U.S., Mm.
1: And so I want to come back to, to kind of bring us into uh, Bridges. Now, y- you've made the point a-, a number of times in the book that uh, that while we see great, we can see great economic growth overall through a market-based economy, one of the problems is, is these gains aren't necessarily equally shared. In fact, I think a number of economists may be overestimated the extent to which, well, winners would, comp- gainers would compensate losers as we moved into a much more international free trade system. And, you know, I think a lot of people make a case that, well, if you want compensation, the simplest type of compensation that doesn't make government and government bureaucracies any bigger is just a direct sort of payment. I was just looking at some numbers. Uh, like uh, in 2019, I think the U.S. spent around 2.7 trillion on all all social in- insurance programs, and that would break down to if you gave broke that out between all the 129 million U.S. households, everyone gets 21 thousand dollars, and that's that would be significant given that median U.S. household income is you know, just under 70 thousand dollars, I believe, in in 2019. So why not just and it creates some sort of UBI type of program and do it and not have to worry about complex bridges or anything like that. I, I, I don't think that's something you would necessarily be a fan of, correct?
0: I, I would not. And, and for a very basic reason, going back to Smith. So the modern Smith, Adam Smith with us today, the Wealth of Nations version of Smith would talk about the ability to compete as well as competition, which course for the Wealth of Nations. It's before Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations, he wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And in that book, he talked a lot about what he called mutual sympathy. I expect we would call it empathy uh, today of trying to bring everyone together, almost going back to the conversation we had uh, a bit ago. And I think the problem with UBI is it creates the notion that for some people, perhaps many people... Uh, their best option is simply to be pensioned off from the productive economy. That is not what Smith and Enlightenment thinkers thought of as mass flourishing. Mass flourishing involved mass participation uh, in the economy. So our task, and it's a difficult one, is to help people compete and succeed in the economy. That is the compensation that's needed Just like economists make a big mistake when we refer to people like us as transition costs when you're introducing some new technology or some new market. I don't know about you. I don't want to be a transition (laughs) cost. It bothers me when economists talk like that. At the same token, I think it's an affront to human dignity to suggest that there's some people who simply have to be pensioned off as opposed to help the mainstream in they're so very fundamental reasons. And I confess that I'm a Calvinist, too, just to put a cherry on top. But I think for those fundamental economic reasons, I, I would be opposed to UBI, though I certainly don't deny that we could do a better job in our social insurance.
1: And you also, I think, make the argument in the book that that work isn't just about economic well-being. It's about just research on and what's called flow and and flourish. Part of flourishing is being challenged in a way uh, that that kind of pushes your abilities and fulfilling work. And so work is more than just making a paycheck. And by, I guess, uh, giving people enough to have them opt out of that system that would actually lead to potentially less human flourishing.
0: That is certainly my point of view. And it raises the difficult task of how do you prepare people Success in the economy that is and will be, as opposed to the one they once knew. I don't deny that that's hard, and because it's hard, people would rather not talk about it. But talk about it, we must.
1: Yeah, and that's where bridges come in. And, and you talk about a number of specific bridges, things that things that connect, as opposed to walls. And but the one I think in the book that I noticed the most was education. You talk about the creation of the land grant colleges and uh, Lincoln, uh, the GI Bill is really. Great examples of educational bridge building, and that of course made me think about uh, recently, you know, President Biden's call for free community college. that ended up being cut out of Build Back Better, which might not even be a thing anymore, depending on what Joe Manchin feels like on any given day. But uh, what do you think about that idea? I mean, is, it, is like, you could certainly see people saying, "Well, yeah, that that would be a great sort of bridge." Uh, and so, what are your thoughts on that? it's well, actually a very
0: or a bridge. Now, okay. Let me do a wind up uh, before I directly answer your question. A bridge is something that gets you to the other side or back. So I think of a bridge at a high level as either being about preparation, getting me to the other side, do something new, or about reconnection, You know, getting me back uh, to the economy. And that's where the land grant colleges and the GI Bill were such game um, changers for the American economy and for the distribution of income in the country because they really were a battering ram for opportunities they both worked well on the local level with local economies they helped people prepare for in the case of the land grant colleges see the rise of manufacturing in the country in the case of the GI bill reconnection to a changed economy for service people who were returning to the country Free community college or more generally free tuition movements were seductive, but they completely missed the point of both the GI Bill and the the land grant college. Both of those were supply side calls. They tried to put money into educational institutions to help them create the training and education that was needed. Community colleges are the answer. They are the foot soldiers for the kinds of. Training and skill-building, people need to adapt to globalization and technological change. Columbia University, where I'm blessed to be able to teach, we're not the problem or the solution uh, in this debate. Community colleges very, very much are. They need money. Their budgets have been cut back a lot by states. Uh, Austin Goolsbee, a fellow economist, uh, and I have had a proposal a couple of years ago to have a federal block grant for community colleges that would help them serve many more individuals, both younger students and students needing retraining. The free tuition movement puts nothing into community colleges as resources and would have failed anyway. It's not even part of the bill. Just yet another whole story Uh, of build back better disconnect from opportunity, in my opinion. But uh, the free community college movement is not one I can get You
1: know, more broadly about education, there's a school of thought that argues that uh, we've, we've reaped most of the big gains we're likely to reap from education. I uh, talked with Tyler Cowen a, a few times on the show, and one of his arguments is that we kind of picked most of that low-lying fruit of education. And there's this race, uh, often called this race between technology and education, and that technology is going to eventually win so that, that the marginal gains you get from every increasing increment of, increment of education are just less and less. And so I, I wanted to get your take on that as well.
0: Well, it's a very interesting point. I, I'm not a fan of a low-hanging fruit analogy. Tyler's not the only person who uses it. Bob Gordon, mm-hmm. my former colleague at Northwestern, has famously used it too. But it, it has this notion of a static tree it doesn't change. And so by definition, if I pick the low hanging fruit, it's harder to get the higher up fruit. But I think of the number of jobs today that didn't even exist 25 years ago, let alone fifty hundred, and some whole kinds of firms and industries that didn't exist. And to my mind, there will be a strong role for education. And I um, use that in the broadest sense, not necessarily in just delivering BA or BS degrees, but in delivering skills, certification, training to get at those new opportunities. So uh, yes, it's going to be a race. Uh, Claudia Golden and Larry Katz uh, famously talked about the uh, race between technology and education. There's very much a race, but it's a race we need to keep running because there will be new opportunities and new opportunities for skill development. Sidebar on that: the education system itself needs to be able to keep up. We can't keep trying to prepare people for things that are current, right?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Bob Gordon because I I I remember reading his book after it came out. Uh, This is called The Rise and Fall of uh, American Economic Growth, and I got to say it left me feeling pretty pretty pessimistic. And so, you don't really share his pessimism, then?
0: I don't. You know, I was blessed when I was at Northwestern to have Bob as a colleague because he's a fabulous economist. But so, too, is another Northwestern professor, Joel Mokir, who's a scholar of the Industrial Revolution, an eminent economic historian. Joel, like me, is much more optimistic. General purpose technologies, um, the kinds of technologies that burst and then change the world, like um, electrification or the internal combustion uh, ink, uh, engine or mainframe computing or artificial intelligence today, these things happen when they happen. They take a while to penetrate through society. But I see nothing that tells me that an age of innovation is over.
1: And just before I forget to mention this, and this is to the listeners, my, uh, one of the things that is common in some of my favorite books is that I not only enjoy the book, and I certainly, uh, Professor Hubbard, enjoy The Wall and the Bridge, but also I found that the best books for me are books that, Give me reading lists. And one of the things I loved about The Wall and the Bridge is I was was like, oh, I got to read Carl Pagliani now. I got to read this and that. And so I I just really wanted to point that out to listeners, because to me, that's the mark of something that is really special and unique, is it's not only good and, and, and insightful in and of itself, but it leads me into an entirely different direction. And and so I just wanted to to thank you for including all that, because it really kind of gave me a a reading list that I didn't realize I needed. But I clearly do. So thank you for that. Thank you. My pleasure. So, uh, you know, you certainly, I think, make a case, a good case that bridges are better than walls. But I, I'm a political scientist. And so I, I tend to think of this in terms of the politics. And it seems in terms of the politics, walls are just, they're easier. They're simpler to, to to get the voters to understand. And also, it seems to me that oftentimes you can see kind of a short-term benefits to walls where they might be long-term costs, whereas bridges, maybe they're more complex to build. They take longer to kind of... And so Th- that can, it seems to me, cause some real problems between what might be smart policy and what might be smart politics. Now you, you sort of referred to that a little bit when you were talking about President Bush's, you know, calculations there. But in part, you also argued that maybe economists can do a better job of, of selling bridges. And I was I was kind of hoping you can kind of expand on that a little bit.
0: But it's a great question. In fact, probably one of the biggest questions in the book. Uh, in the book, I make reference to the Queen of England. It doesn't sound like a great economist, but she asked, to my mind, probably the most perceptive question in the global financial crisis. When she went to the London School of Economics, asked a group of economics worthies the following question Why did nobody notice? How did something so big as the financial crisis happen? And all you people who are so smart, you missed it. In this context, I think the Queen would say, globalization and technological change, those sound like really big things. And any introductory textbook would tell you they're going to have major effects in the economy. Why weren't you focused on that? The wall is a simple idea. I can return the world to the way it was. It's very seductive. It's wrong, but it's very seductive. Where economists have defaulted is laundry lists. They say, no, do this, do this, do this, do this. A better idea is to go back to what Keynes talked about in international finance or Polanyi in the economy at large. In my words, not theirs, it would be a people-first system over a rules-first system. So before you try to come up with individual policies, listen, try to understand the concerns of people. And address an agenda to do it. Let me give you a tangible example. Canada and France both went through issues of major energy tax reform in recent years, to um, lower carbon intensity. The French did it in such a way that led to protests, you probably know, this is mm-hmm. called Yellow Vest Movement against President Macron. Because it was a very, you know, as an externality, it was very technocratically presented There's an externality. We got to fix it. We're going to use a tax. You'll adapt. Canada ultimately implements a very similar policy, but does compensation first, explains the disruption that no, it will happen and transfers income. Notice the difference between those two. It's the same policy. Notice how different it is the way you talk about it. I think economists. Need to step up and not just talk about lists of ideas, but about how you talk to people. And I think there are, fortunately for our country, political leaders on both sides who are well capable of that conversation.
1: Now under the the Trump administration pretty clearly in a lot of ways walls were a were a big idea you mentioned its trade advisors and of course you know the physical wall and bringing saying the claims I will bring the jobs back to Youngstown and and other places obviously so the Trump administration clearly was a, a fan of walls and and you call them out in a number of instances for that and so I'm wondering well uh, has the Biden administration in your view it's only been not quite a year but have they been any better to this point? I, that, and I think specifically, of course, of infrastructure, because we've just seen the largest infrastructure package in more than a generation, I think, being passed. So infrastructure literally <laughs> involves um, some bridges, and physical bridges. Well, what do you think about the, the Biden administration on walls versus bridges so far?
0: Great question. Let me start with Trump and then move to Biden. So with Trump, I do have to pause and give Donald Trump some credit. Economists don't do that very often because he did put his finger on a problem people weren't talking about, which is the underlying disruption that's the theme of the wall and the bridge. He acknowledged front and center that these are real problems and that real people are hurting. And make no mistake about it, that was a core element of the political support that he achieved. Having said that, It's his execution that's flawed. Walls fail for all the reasons that they've always failed. But I think you do have to give Trump credit for at least raising the question. So it's in that sense you can turn to Biden. I don't think President Biden has done a particularly good job here. His protectionism seems at least as bad uh, as President Trump's. And While I do support, did support the infrastructure bill uh, that was being debated. It could have been better, but it's certainly uh, progress. I think it's only a beginning of what I would call a real opportunity agenda. The agenda, by contrast, the president is campaigning on right now is more of a um, social welfare agenda. You can be for it or against it, but it isn't an opportunity agenda. And I think that's what's missing in the country. So unfortunately, I don't give either of those candidates very high marks uh, in terms of bridge. Rich-
1: I think, again, politically, either saying to people, well, we're just going to give you stuff, regardless of what that is, or we are going to bring back your jobs much more kind of uh, initially appealing. I, I, you know, trying to put myself in the place of, say, uh, you know, a 50 year old steel worker or a coal miner saying that, well, your job is going, but we will retrain you, that's not nearly as appealing to me as we will get your job back or we will give you some sort of direct compensation. And that gets, I guess, to that point of having to do a better job of communicating the longer term reality. I think that's right.
0: And it's also not just about retaining. It may be about transition income support. You know, in the book, I talk mm-hmm. about rewarding work and they're very extensive ways we may mean to do more of that uh, in society. So it's not just words, it's, it's actions too, but it does need to center on work and human flourishing and not just uh, treating individuals, many individuals, as if they were some residue of the economic system. That's just grossly unfair.
1: And, and so I, I would, you kind of alluded to it earlier on when we were, were talking about Build Back Better, which I, I, I'm still betting will end up has to get some sort of much smaller form. But when we're talking about small, maybe being like a trillion, that's still hard for me to wrap my head around. But, but it sounded to me like you don't think that that really is necessarily part of a bridge type agenda, because a lot of folks, of course, would say, well, the transition to a green economy presents all sorts of opportunities for job retraining and, and that sort of thing. But, but my sense is, is that you don't really see it in that light.
0: Well, yes and no. I I certainly think the transition to a green economy, along with artificial intelligence, are the next wave of the kind of um, job market dislocations that I talk about uh, in the book. Unfortunately, Build Back Better doesn't do a lot Um, to help with that. There are a lot of very serious social scientists and business people working on the important topic of just transitions. And I do think um, the Biden administration might profitably focus there. So you could have a debate over a lot that's in Build Back Better. I, certainly our social welfare programs need improvement. It's just not what I'm looking for. As to money, you know, when I first started working on this project, I thought everything I was suggesting was too expensive. I, I don't know that I added everything up in the book, but if you did, maybe you could get to a price tag of you know, approximating $100 billion a year. So in Washington budget map, that's a trillion dollars so over 10 years. The me of two or three years ago would say that's impossible. The me now, looking at the numbers that people have used in the past few years, says, why not? Yeah. And I can think of tax reforms and other things that would make that possible. Unfortunately, nobody's suggesting that to American People are either told do nothing or do build back better. Well, that can't be the answer. Yeah.
1: Do you see more broadly, I mean, when I think about the political parties in general on these sort of issues, I obviously it's been pointed out that there are more than a few similarities between uh, the populist left and the populist right, Bernie Sanders and, and Donald Trump, you know, and, and protectionism and that sort of thing. But do you see either party being notably Better or worse uh, when, when it comes to being more oriented toward bridges or walls? Or, or are both parties largely just kind of missing the boat here?
0: I think they're both missing the boat. And that means I could lament it. But I also think it's a major opportunity. You know, politics, like anything else in um, economics, too, is a competitive sport. And if there is an opportunity, I expect someone to come in it. From the Democratic side and the Republican side, I can think of very good people who have done work in this area in their own experience who could carry this ball. And I look for them to do it.
1: And so finally, uh, how optimistic are you that this will actually get done, that we will see uh, at least more of a movement toward bridges and away from walls in the you know, near term future, I guess?
0: Well, I'm optimistic. And, and of course, I should confess to you that I'm kind of always optimistic. Okay. I don't you know, learn very much when I say I'm optimistic. I'm pretty much an optimistic person. But the reason I think the country will figure it out is because it has to. The world that I see coming, and we talked about climate change and artificial intelligence adding to logical change and globalization, is a world in which social discord is only going to rise from the forces that I talk about in the book. We have to figure this out. And the nation has done a very good job of figuring things out, and it has had to in the past. And so, in that sense, I'm optimistic.
1: Well, then, on that optimistic note, we will close. Glenn Hubbard, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's show. We hope you like what you heard. If you'd like a second full length Politics Guys episode every single week, as opposed to just these occasional interviews, you can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. Supporters also get ad-free versions of every episode as well as other good stuff. To get the details and to become a supporter, just go to patreon.com/politicsguys and if you can't afford to become a supporter, to email me at mike@politicsguys.com at and I will get you full access to that second episode every single week. And if being a monthly supporter is too much of a commitment, but you still like to help us out occasionally, you can do that too through PayPal. You'll find a link on our website, politicsguys.com support. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, that is a big help as well as leaving ratings and reviews and especially sharing your favorite episodes on social media. That's a big deal to us. And if you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, or whatever, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. For more great discussions, check out our Bipartisan Politics subreddit. You'll find the URL in the show notes. We've also got a Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join
0: us.